Where did Johnny Mercer hang his hat? Where would you find an Englishman's castle? What is the 5,110th most common surname? We have taken the one word that answers all of these questions as our theme for this, the June issue of Look Here. And that word is home, or in some cases, Hume. I'm Pippa Curtis, though sadly, Sir Alec Douglas Hume cannot be with us today. He died in 1995. And nor can Catherine Neal, who's in Australia. But her place is being ably taken up by someone whom you may have heard on the talking newspapers, Dill Porter. Hello. Along with Jane Fares. Hello. And Phil Lee. Hello. There are approximately 1,700 people in the UK with the surname Home, or Hume, however you care to pronounce it. According to britishsurnames.co.uk, it is the 5,110th most common surname overall, meaning that out of every one million people in the UK, approximately 27 are named Home, or Hume. For the purposes of this magazine, however, we're going to settle on home. I think most people have heard the song Home Sweet Home. It was so popular, even Heinz used it to advertise their wares. But they can't have paid much in royalties as the writer of the song died in 1855. Home Sweet Home was written by Sir Henry Rowley Bishop in 1823. So it's only one year off being 200 years old. Sir Henry was born in 1786 and began composing as a teenager. He was the first musician to be honoured in England with a knighthood and his musical setting for the popular song Home Sweet Home will ensure that his reputation lasts. Between 1810 and 1835, he had written numerous works, including operas, musical plays, musical entertainments and melodramas. Much of his music has been lost, but it is probable that most of these have more in common with today's musicals than with the full-blown 19th-century continental opera tradition. It was his 1823 opera, Clary, or The Maid of Bilan, that brought him fame. With a libretto by the American John Howard Payne, the show contained the enormously popular song Home Sweet Home. Seeing an opportunity later, Bishop reissued this piece of music as a parlour song in 1852 and its fame grew internationally. Perhaps on account of its American author, Payne, the song was taken up wholeheartedly in the United States and by the time of the Civil War it was hugely popular with both sides. 
It was said to be a favourite of Abraham Lincoln, too, although it is recorded that some Union generals banned its singing. They feared that it might generate feelings of homesickness among the troops and encourage desertion. Thank you, Jane. As a concept, home is the subject of thousands of popular songs, according to one study, second only to love, while countless plays, novels and poems all draw heavily on the theme. Dill reads Philip Larkin. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, Bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano store, that vase. Lots of homes in the wind in the willows. This one belongs to Badger. Caught in the snow, Mole and Ratty have just rung his bell and hammered on his door. The badger, who wore a long dressing gown and whose slippers were indeed very down at heel, carried a flat candlestick in his paw and had probably been on his way to bed when the summons sounded. He looked kindly down on them and patted both their heads. This is not the sort of night for small animals to be out, he said paternally. I'm afraid you've been up to some of your pranks again, Ratty. But come along, come into the kitchen. There's a first-rate fire there and supper and everything. He shuffled on in front of them, carrying the light, and they followed him, nudging each other in an anticipating sort of way, down a long, gloomy, and to tell the truth, decidedly shabby passage, into a sort of central hall, out of which they could dimly see other long tunnel-like passages branching, passages mysterious, without apparent end. But there were doors in the hall as well, stout, oaken, comfortable-looking doors. One of these the badger flung open, and at once they found themselves in all the glow and warmth of a large, firelit kitchen. The floor was well-worn red brick, and on the wide hearth burnt a fire of logs between two attractive chimney corners tucked away in the wall, well out of any suspicion of draught. In the middle of the room stood a long table of plain boards placed on trestles with benches down each side. At one end of it, where an armchair stood pushed back, was spread the remains of Badger's plain but ample supper. Rows of spotless plates winked down from the shelves of the dresser at the far end of the room, and from the rafters overhead hung hams, bundles of dried herbs, nets of onions and baskets of eggs. The kindly badger thrust them down on a settle to toast themselves at the fire and bade them remove their wet coats and boots. Then he fetched them dressing gowns and slippers. When at last they were thoroughly toasted, the badger summoned them to the table where he'd been busy laying a repast. They had felt pretty hungry before, but when they actually saw at last the supper that was spread for them, really it seemed only a question of what they should attack first, where all was so attractive and whether the other things would obligingly wait for them until they had time to give them attention. 
conversation was impossible for a long time, and when it was slowly resumed, it was that regrettable sort of conversation that results from talking with your mouth full. The badger did not mind at all that sort of thing, nor did he take any notice of elbows on the table, or everybody speaking at once. Well, it's time we were all in bed, said the badger, getting up and fetching flat candlesticks. Come along, you two, and I'll show you your quarters. And take your time tomorrow morning, breakfast at any time you please. He conducted the two animals to a long room that seemed half bedchamber and half loft. The badger's winter stores, which indeed were visible everywhere, took up half the room. Piles of apples, turnips and potatoes, baskets full of nuts and jars of honey but the two little white beds on the remainder of the floor looked soft and inviting, and the linen on them, though coarse, was clean and smelt beautifully of lavender. And the mole and the water rat, shaking off their garments in some thirty seconds, tumbled in between the sheets in great joy and contentment. Thank you, Phil. From a home deep in the ground, now to the loftier realms occupied by pigeons. Homing pigeons, to be exact. Jane. Most of the best-known examples of strong homing ability are among birds, particularly racing or homing pigeons. Around half a million people worldwide keep pigeons. I can vouch for Beirut and Cairo, as I've seen the pigeons circling after release from the rooftop lofts. Did you know that Her Majesty the Queen has long been a pigeon fancier and patron of many UK pigeon racing associations? She has around 200 pigeons in her loft at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk. There was an army pigeon corps during the Second World War which used pigeons to send messages back to England when radio silence was needed. However, the question that has perplexed everyone is, how do pigeons find their way home? And the simple answer is that you train them by taking them further and further from their loft on separate occasions. But exactly how do they find their way back home from long distances? What is involved and how does the pigeon do this? Especially when they can come back to the loft from up to 700 miles away at up to 60 miles an hour. Is the landscape giving a visual compass to the bird which it uses to navigate? There are three suggestions. Sight, magnetism and smell, although two of the opposing camps will hardly speak to each other. The first is sight. Birds have a different visual range to us. It's an almost 360-degree range, which Tom Guilford at Oxford University says acts like a map. He has been studying pigeons for 15 years and says he's pretty sure that this is important for bird navigation. The birds follow their own route home, and he's checked this by attaching a global tracking device to birds. This uses Global Positioning, GPS, to track the exact flight path taken by the birds, a sort of compass. This has proved that the birds follow their own route home. It's personal. Every second of the journey is recorded and the pigeons take their own identical routes home. 
not the most sensible from identical release sites. From a new release site, the pigeon will know the landscape and then lock on to a previous route. Steeplechasing from one prominent landmark to the next, memorising that route. The visual landscape. Remember, recognise and use what they've seen before in the landscape. In Frankfurt, they say it's not sight, but a magnetic compass based in two places, the beak and the eye. A sun-based magnetometer in the eye and another magnetometer in the beak to tell whether it's flying north or south. Pigeons are myopic, i.e. short-sighted, so Frankfurt does not think sight of the landscape as a map is the answer. An experiment was conducted where frosted lenses were attached to the pigeons' eyes. The pigeons made it back to the loft, although it took a bit longer. In another experiment, the vision of pigeons was reduced by putting plastic coverings on their loft. This restricted the pigeons' sight of their surroundings. They could not tell which way the winds were blowing or see around the loft. When the pigeons were released to return to the loft, it took longer, but they made it. So, Frankfurt is saying that the two magnetic compasses in their eye and beak helped them home. Then there is the third camp at Pisa University in Italy, which says it's the pigeons' sense of smell which gets them home. Their idea is that the landscape is an olfactory map. The wind carries the odours, so pigeons which can't smell can't home. Dr Anna Gagliano thinks this is the answer. She believes the pigeons know the odours coming from north, south, east and west. An entire jigsaw made up of smells, with the winds carrying the odours which the birds recognise. If pigeons' ability to smell is removed, Novocaine is used to anaesthetise the pigeon's nose, the pigeon is unable to home. This is the onosmic, or no-smell camp. There was also a waterborne experiment letting the birds go from the middle of a lake using both birds brought up in a loft shielded by plexigrass and birds from a normal unscreened loft. The result was that the birds from the screened loft could not home. It was thought that they were disorientated and could not access smells from a region brought on the winds. Birds from the unscreened loft could. So what would happen if the loft the pigeon's home was moved? Rupert Sheldrake has been conducting experiments in England which involved moving the loft. First a small distance and then further afield. He worked on the hypothesis that pigeons were attached to their home and where the loft went they would follow. Did it work? Yes, success. The pigeons found the loft. Little by little, the loft was moved further and further away, until it was finally moved to a seagoing vessel on open water on the Severn Estuary, 40 miles away. Would the pigeons find it there? GPS trackers were fitted to the birds, and Dr Sheldrake settled down to wait on the ship. Over two days, i.e. 54 hours later, he learned that the pigeons had visited all the other positions to which the loft had been moved previously in an effort to find it without success. The experiment was concluded.
and the loft returned to its last position, whereupon the birds returned. So their compass does not work as a map. Sight, magnetism or smell. Or rather, a field that science has not yet described or admitted. Yesterday's paranormal is today's normal. We're closer than before to understanding how pigeons home, but it's tantalisingly just out of reach. Perhaps a combination of all the senses. I think the pigeons will keep us guessing a little bit longer. And of course, no birds were harmed in the course of those experiments. My home is not always comfortable. And as we've seen very painfully in places like Sudan, the Congo, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and of course, most recently, Ukraine, far from staying at home, some folk cannot wait to get away. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbours running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. Warsan Shah was born in Kenya to Somali parents and lives in London. She is a poet, writer, editor and teacher. In 2013-14, she was the Young Poet Laureate for London. She wrote Conversations About Home at a Deportation Centre in 2009, a piece inspired by a visit she made to the abandoned Somali embassy in Rome, which some young refugees had turned into their home. In an interview, she told the reporter that the night before she visited, a young Somali had jumped to his death off the roof. The encounter, she says, opened her eyes to the harsh reality of living as an undocumented refugee in Europe. I wrote the poem for them, she said, for my family and for anyone who has experienced or lived around grief and trauma in that way. The poem became the basis for Home. Home has been shared widely across the media and has been read in a range of public spaces, including London's Trafalgar Square. Commentators have noted that Home has touched a nerve among people, that it's offered a way to give voice to refugees and to provide some authentic understanding of the crisis. No one leaves home unless home chases you. Fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then, you carried the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in an airport toilet, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear that you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles travelled mean something more than journey. No one crawls under fences, wants to be beaten, 
wants to be pitied. In an interview after she won the Brunel University African Poetry Prize, Warsan was asked to talk about her sense of commitment to substance and urgent subject matter in her work. In response, she said, I'm from Somalia, where there's been a war going on for my entire life. I grew up with a lot of horror in the backdrop, a lot of terrible things that have happened to people who are really close to me and to my country and to my parents. So it's in the home, it's even in you, it's on your skin and it's in your memories and your childhood. And my relatives and my friends and my mother's friends have experienced things that you can't imagine and they've put on this jacket of resilience and a dark humour. But you don't know what they've been victims of or what they've done to other people. Them being able to tell me and then me writing it is cathartic. Being able to share their stories, even if it is something really terrible, something really tragic. Sometimes I'm telling other people's stories to remove stigma and taboo so that they don't have to feel ashamed. Sometimes you use yourself as an example. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of a gun. And no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hungry, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Orson Shire's poem Home was read by Jane Lush. It doesn't always take domestic disruption on that scale, however, to make someone abandon their home. The father of 17-year-old Melanie Coe, the schoolgirl who seemed to have everything, spent yesterday searching for her in London and Brighton. She's been missing from her home at Amherst Park, Stamford Hill, for a week. In February 1967, an article appeared in the Daily Mail about a 17-year-old girl from Stamford Hill in London who had run away from home. Her background you might describe as comfortable. She had her own bank account, her own car, and a wardrobe full of expensive clothes. And yet she left with nothing but the garments she stood up in. Her father, businessman Mr John Coe, said yesterday... I cannot imagine why she should run away. She has everything here. She's very keen on clothes, but she left them all, even her fur coat. As it turned out, Melanie's story had a pretty happy ending. She'd met a man at a nightclub and rented a flat with him briefly in London 
before safely returning home to Stamford Hill about ten days after the Daily Mail news article had been printed. The interesting thing about this relatively minor event, however, is the story that surrounds it. Back in 1963, four years earlier, Melanie Coe had appeared on the TV show Ready, Steady, Go as a contestant in a miming competition in which four young ladies stood before a judge and mimed to Brenda Lee's song Let's Jump the Broomstick. The song's lyrics concern a boy's entreaties to his girlfriend to leave her parents, fly away with him, presumably on a broomstick, and tie the knot. A fairly clear connection to subsequent events, you'd say. And although Melanie herself never linked the theme of that song with her later adventures, the irony is biting. Melanie won the TV competition and was awarded her prize on air immediately after the song finished, by the judge himself, the judge being no other than Paul McCartney. Four years later, inspired by the article in the Daily Mail about Coe's recent disappearance, McCartney penned the song She's Leaving Home, which appeared on the Beatles' Sgt Pepper album later that year. Now, whereas Let's Jump the Broomstick may well have had absolutely nothing to do with Melanie's adventures, Melanie's adventures had everything to do with the Beatles' song She's Leaving Home. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins, silently closing her bedroom door, leaving the note that she hoped would say more, she goes downstairs to the kitchen, clutching her handkerchief, quietly turning the back door key, stepping outside, she is free. In his biography, Many Years From Now, Paul McCartney writes, We'd seen a story in the newspaper about a young girl who had left home and not been found. There were a lot of those at the time, and that was enough to give us a storyline. So I started to get the lyrics. She slips out and leaves a note, and then the parents wake up. It was rather poignant. The song goes on. Friday morning at nine o'clock she is far away, waiting to keep the appointment she made, meeting a man from the motor trade. Quoted in A Hard Day's Right by Steve Turner, Melanie Coe herself says, I heard the song when it came out and thought it was about someone like me, but never dreamed it actually was me. I can remember thinking that I didn't run off with a man from the motor trade, so it couldn't have been me. I must have been in my twenties when my mother said she'd seen Paul on television and he had said that the song was based on a story in a newspaper. That's when I started telling my friends it was about me. It has been suggested that a man from the motor trade was a euphemism for an abortionist. And although Melanie Coe did have a termination that year, the theory itself is not correct. She had met up with an older man named David, not an abortionist, however, but a croupier in a club she frequented. Nevertheless, writing in Rolling Stone magazine, Melanie comments that although the young man I did run away to be with was a croupier, he had been in the motor trade before he became a croupier. Paul was close with a man from the motor trade. I've 
Cara Dillon is a much-acclaimed Irish songwriter of international standing. Her leaving song is no less poignant than the Beatles' She's Leaving Home. But although on the same subject, it concerns itself with a much earlier time in history. There is a long tradition of Irish emigration to America, starting in the 17th century and extending into the 1920s, initially in response to the famine and hardship caused by repeatedly failing crops in Northern Ireland, where Cara's ancestors could see no future for themselves at home. John Plush asked Cara how her family history finds its way into her music. I wrote a song called The Leaving Song, which is all based on um, stories that my mother told me about different people that she knew and great-uncles of hers who emigrated to America and what it might have been like how, how I feel it might have been like to be the mother of a child who had to leave and never to return because back in those days it was a one-way ticket. And so, yes, I think, you know, a lot of the songs become, there's a big part of yourself in it and, and maybe your dreams, your hopes or just stuff that has been filtered down, you know, through the years that you've picked up on. Stay by my side, run the lyrics and give up your doubt. Your brother has gone and my time's running out. Unlike Melanie Coe's mother, in The Leaving Song, this poor woman at least gets the chance to talk to her child and beg him not to go. Hold out your hand, love. We'll figure this out. You don't need to leave and never look back. At home with Vonya Carlton, and Mike Lane has come to help with the garden. It's lovely to be in summer at last. At long last. Oh, fantastic. Bedding plants. I love them. A bit of history. They, um, they sort of originally came over here in the 19th century. Where did they come from? Uh, just from plant finders. People would go off and start finding these plants and then bring them back to their gardens. Back in the 19th century, it was used to show off people's money. 
Uh-huh. Um, so it's a display plans. of their wealth. Display so. of their wealth, yeah. yes. And was there was there a bit of a competition maybe to see who could get the most unusual? Yes, flowers? there would have been a large competition, uh, especially on designs, on bringing in different blocks of colour. But all this was sort of abolished, basically, on the 24th of July, 1851, with the end of the window tax. Oh. When this was abolished, it meant then that people could have glass houses in their own back gardens which means they can basically produce bedding plants any time of the year are there some that like shade and some that like sun or, or do they mostly like sun they mostly like sun um to be honest they're, they're, they're quite good in any space mm-hmm. generally and the other thing is bedding plants can be quite affordable as you can start sowing the seeds in february to april for the um, summer bedding plants and for winter, you can start sowing the seeds from May to July. So oh. as we're planting our summer bedding, we can also start sowing seeds in our greenhouses for the winter bedding, which could be things like pansies and, and prim- primroses and violas. Do you have to keep deadheading them in order for them to keep flowering? Yes, I'd recommend definitely possibly once a week just run your hands through them mm. and just start feeling a, a, a dry leaf pick it out mm. uh, and, and the with, heads tend to droop yes, don't they yeah yeah even just maybe just just use your your thumb yes i usually use my thumb just to pinch them off would it be possible for me to have some in pots rather than just all in the borders absolutely yeah there's nothing better than filling a pot full of bedding plants um, and I have to say one of, the, one of the best ways in doing this is to put some compost in the pot to start off with. Um, and then what I tend to use is the actual pots to get the depth of the plant. So you could say, right, I want, I want to get three plants within this container. And then you could place the three pots into the container, then fill the container up with soil. And then afterwards, just lift out yes. the pots and then you can just put the plants back into the space into the holes. and firm them off, yeah. firm them down and give them a good watering. That's a very canny little trick. It works very well, actually. <laughs> it does work very well. Thank um, you for that. <laughs> <laughs> what about putting in the soil uh, some of these little grains that soak up the moisture so that I don't have to water so often? In pots, absolutely fine. It's like, it's like, like a sponge. sponge. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's just, just, just like a sponge. So, so it just, just, just holds the water and keeps everything, keep, keep, nice, keep and it, everything nice and moist. Actually, that does lead quite nicely into some garden tech. Garden tech? What's yeah, that? Yeah, garden tech. It's technology which we can use within the garden. You can buy a, a moisture meter which you can stick into the ground. That will then speak to your smartphone and it will tell you whether that container needs watering. Wow. Um, and it'll tell you how much water is required. And some of them also will tell you your pH of the soil, oh, yes. which then helps uh, with feeding the plants. So I've seen them mainly using containers, but I have been told that you can use them out into your flower beds as well. What a good idea. The other thing I have found recently is an app for your phone uh, where you can take a photograph of a leaf or a flower, and then it'll tell you what does that plant is and i think this, this is a very handy thing to have so if you're out and about um, that's really useful so technology within the garden is definitely an important thing to have yeah 
As we're in June though, one of my top tips is to visit a fruit farm. Oh yes. I personally think there's nothing better than going to a pick your own place to pick your strawberries or raspberries. Yes, I'm with you there. I absolutely adore it. A lot of them are, are at waist height, so there isn't the bending over. It's quite often they're in polytunnels as well, so you can walk through a polytunnel and you just get that powerful smell mm. of strawberries. And then sometimes if it's wet, there could be some straw on the floor, so you just get that whole whole smell of of horticulture. And I have to say, if they are at waist height, it's actually just quite nice just to run your hands through. Uh, the strawberries themselves and when when you you know if you found a a ripe one and you just twist it and pull it off yeah it'll come off Uh, easily won't it yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and a lot of these places have got coffee shops um nowadays as well um and it's just a a, a nice pleasant morning out and are there many around worcester around worcester yeah there's uh, out towards there's clive's fruit farm which is which Mm -hmm. is a place out towards um upton Mm mm-hmm there's a few on the Starport Road as you go in from the Mitre Oak. So Sounds a great idea. I just love the soft the, fruits the soft of summer. Fruit. What jobs have you got lined up for me, Mike? So, uh, yeah, start planting your vegetables. And the other thing is this time of the year, any seeds, you can start putting them straight in. Prepare the soil and just put the seeds in. Time also to start feeding your baskets and tubs, probably every two weeks, just to give them yeah. some feed, mm-hmm. all the way through to the end of September possibly october um, i think liquid feed liquid feed is quite easy to put in mm-hmm. into the watering mm-hmm. can yeah um yeah just some tomato feed and yeah. just 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 put a cap of that that into your, your gallon and then just top up the containers do remember if you do feed and weed your lawns make sure you get some rain and if you haven't had any rain within 24 hours then at least try to water it because if not you end up with scorching as they call it oh. from the product yes um, also bring your house plants outside for some fresh air and daylight um they've been locked inside all over the winter let's bring them out fill that patio yeah, i've never done that that sounds yeah. quite an interesting idea enjoy them outside yes. for a change yeah. and then just keep on top of the weed and run your hands through the flower beds you, you soon be able to feel the weeds mm-hmm. and plant some salad oh yes i've done I've, I've done a bit and then you can have some gorgeous leaves Nice and fresh. Nice and fresh. Mm. So, yes, there's just a few tasks. Okay. Uh, Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. So, I'll see you uh, in August. Yes, and let's hope this lovely weather continues. Fingers crossed. Have a good summer. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Mike Lane and Vonya Carlton. If you're sitting at home with nothing important to do, why not pick up an audiobook? Phil's been listening to Alan Bennett's The Uncommon Reader. present, when satire can seem sometimes so blunt and shrill, what a delight to encounter this delicate and sympathetic piece of fun. The uncommon reader in question is no less than Queen Elizabeth II, who, quite unintentionally, finds herself in the City of Westminster Travelling Library, from where, recovering her signature poise, she emerges with a book to read and a new acquaintance called Norman. Norman works in her kitchen at Windsor Castle, but soon finds himself moved upstairs and fitted with a pages uniform and the task of guiding Her Majesty's reading list. So far, so good. But the Queen's rapidly developing appetite for books and the importance that this confers on Norman is certainly not to the liking of those around her. 
He will end up in the University of East Anglia, but they will meet again. Her Majesty's reading starts to have consequences. She becomes less interested in the endless round of rather dull visits arranged for her. After all, she has in any case been Queen for a long time, and there is little that she hasn't seen or done. At one point, on a trip to Canada, an exasperated Prince Philip asks why she isn't looking at the St Lawrence Seaway. I've seen it, she retorts. I opened it. Moreover, to the horror of the equerries who organise her meetings with people, the Queen initiates changes in her conversation. Warned that she will ask about the distance people have travelled and by what means, they find themselves asked, to their confusion, What are you reading at the moment? To this, very few of Her Majesty's loyal subjects had a ready answer, though one did try. The Bible? Hence the awkward pauses which the Queen tended to fill by saying, I'm reading, and sometimes even fishing in her handbag and giving them a glimpse of the lucky volume. Bennett's insight sparkles. The nature of royal duties and the pressures that it puts on those whose task it is to plan, arrange or carry it out is the central theme. In particular, what happens when its smooth operation is undermined by change and when what has been routine becomes the subject of doubt and uncertainty. Throughout, the Queen is presented as someone discovering that she is a woman rather than a role, or maybe a woman as well as a role. She's found a passion and wants to include it in her life, but she's still a doer. At one point, she writes in a notebook, you don't put your life into books, you find it there. The problem is that those around her do not share or even understand her passion. The world of literature and the peculiar English relationship with it is also dissected. There are more authors and references here than one might find in the local bookshop, and it enriches the listening experience. There's a mild amount of politics too. Listen out for the Queen's encounters with her Prime Minister, which are included at times throughout the recording. You'll also perhaps develop a little sympathy for Sir Kevin from New Zealand, who bears the brunt of some top-class satirical writing. The piece is read by Bennett himself, and the inflections in his voice add focus to the humour. His reading makes the story a performance, and a very successful one. The story was first broadcast on BBC Radio 4. This is an extended version. There are two CDs, both in good condition, and the duration is around two and a half hours. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chance House, and we'll put it into your envelope when it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. And while we're in story mode, our audio playhouse this month was written specially for our theme of home. But it's not the kind of home that you or I are used to. We present The Eighteenth Hole by John Stanbury. Oh, that's a big hole. Patsy! Patsy! 
she's looking for this. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you startled me. It's going into my hallway. Hello. Your dog ran through after it, but now she disappeared in the back somewhere. I'm sorry, you live near here? Just here, yeah. Oh, I, I didn't see the house. House? Dear me, no. That's my place, see? I... sorry? It's out of the way, sure enough. <laughs> You'd hardly know it was there, would you? But that's just a... Some people call it just a hole in the ground. But to us, it's home. A home? I suppose you live in the house. Yes. I'm staying for a little while with my uncle. Cold things, houses. Stuck up there in the wind and the rain. You don't? A house, I mean. Dear me, no. Much cosier down here, especially in this weather. Your dog seems to like it. Don't know where she's gone. Oh. You wait here. I'll go fetch her. Okay. Here, little dog. Yeah. Oh, what's her name, miss? Patsy. Here, here, Patsy. Come to old Dorcas. <coughs> Where have you got to? <laughs> Dear me, you've got yourself in a mess there. Is she all right? Here. Have you found her? She's got herself a bit stuck up a vent hole. Now, come on, girl. Let's get you down. Careful now. No, don't struggle. Don't struggle. That's... Here you are, miss. Uh, she's got something stuck in her eye. I'll, I'll bathe it. Oh, really? You don't need no to... No trouble, miss. No, it's my fault. I should have put grills on them holes years ago. But old Dorcas will sort you out in a moment. No, You're very kind, Mr... Um... Dorcas, miss. Dorcas Cloversoup. How do you do, Mr Cloversoup? There we are. That's it. It's all better now. Oh, thank you, Mr Cloversoup. Uh, you're welcome, miss. Uh... Sylvia. Trope. Trope? Trope, developer. My uncle Daniel. This is his field. Well, most of the fields around here, actually. Mm, yes, I know. I've encountered your uh, uncle. Oh? He bought it from the apple yards just last year. Well, I say bought. Tom Appleyard reckons something different happened. Well, I wouldn't know, Mr Cloversoup. Have you lived here long in this, um... In my old... All my life, miss. Had me parents and grandparents afore me. Fifty years ago, this were a thriving community. Tunnels and dwellings stretching for half a mile or more. Eighteen families there was in this field alone. Eighteen? Just this field, miss. More beyond. <laughs> Not now, though. The older ones died off. The younger ones... Moved away. Didn't want to live in an hole. Lost me last neighbour a couple of months ago. They left? Uh, not exactly. Uh, his place were down on the other side of the copse, where your uncle's put his lake. So he had to move away? Ah, didn't get the chance. Someone had dumped a load of hardcore into his entrance first. By the time I cleared it out, we were too late. You mean... Yeah, he was still down there. Oh, Mr Cloversoup. I'm sure my uncle would never have... Accident, of course. No one knew he lived there. Except Tom Appleyard. He, he'd have known. He looked after us all right, did Mr Appleyard. Looked after the farm, cared for the land, you know. Cared for the animals too, and... Until... Oh, oh I said dreadful, that foot and mouth. 
Foot and mouth disease? Did for him. Old Tom lost a lot. Oh, I'm so sorry. But I'm sure, as the new owner, my uncle will look after you every bit as well as the Apple Yards used yes, to. Yes, miss. Sure enough. Anyway, I'd best let you go. Things to do, you know? Yes. Um, thank you for looking after Patsy. You take care now. Goodbye, Mr. Clovisuit. Yes, Reggie, right on schedule. They're laying the access road starting next week. Okay. Foundation for the main build going in on the 15th. Right. I've got another meeting with the landscapers this afternoon. We're looking at opening just in time for Christmas. Okay. I think you can expect a very handsome return on your investment. How's Marjorie's home office project coming along? Planning subcommittee will approve it next week. Fine. When do you think it'll go to tender? Two or three months. Know how these things are. Right. I'll give you the all clear when we're ready. Needs to look right. Don't want any questions asked. Just a minute. Your niece? Oh, yes. She's still with me. She and her dog. Still looking for a place of her own. Is she going to be difficult? No, no. She won't be any trouble. Okay, Reggie. Give my regards to Marjorie. You keep an eye on those contractors. Yeah, sure. Ciao. Sylvie! Uncle Daniel? Yeah. Who was that? Only the right honourable Reginald Sharp MP. Isn't he Marjorie Sharp's husband? That woman who made such a hash of the transport reform bill last year, then got promoted to the Home Office. You can't have too many friends in high places, Sylvie. She's as keen on golf as he is. Know what I mean? That's what I wanted to talk to you about. Golf? Sort of. I was just out with Patsy, and we met a fascinating person. Mm. You know there's someone living in the top field, don't you? Mm. He has a house. In the hill. Like, a proper house. Mm. Underground. In the hill. He lives there. Not for much longer. What do you mean? Sylvie, honey. I can't have people living underneath the new golf course, can I? It's my land now. He'll have to move. But... And anyways, the top field's the site for the hotel complex. He's got to go. Go where? How the hell should I know? He'll have to dig himself into someone else's field. But, Uncle, he's lived there all his life. Oh, he's such a kind person. He looked after Patsy The man she... lives in a hole in the ground. Get some perspective, Sylvia. We are building the best, the most exclusive championship golf course in the whole country. A hundred-room luxury hotel. Jacuzzis, spas, swimming pools, a boating lake, employment for scores of local people, hundreds of visitors pouring in, elegant visitors, visitors with pedigree, class. They don't want to be sharing their space with a, a, a troglodyte. Uncle, his name is Dorcas. Dorcas Clovisuit. Ridiculous name. He's going. Uncle, please. Could you not <sighs> just for me? Look, if it'll make you any happier... I'll find him somewhere else on the estate to move into. Where? I don't know. I'll get Hatchet to find him somewhere. Now, if that's all, I have a video conference with the landscape architect in five minutes. There you are. That'll be just a fiver, Jace. Thank you very much. Now, what can I get for you, love? Lemon and lime, please. One lemon and lime coming up. Special prices here for locals, you know. Oh, really? I wouldn't know. When I first came to the Farriers, you could get a pint for just a quid. A pound? Well, you can't know, but it's still good value. Isn't that right, George? That's right, Mr Appleyard. Great customer value for our greatly valued customers. 
That's one twenty, please, miss. I'll get that. No, really. Here, George. Well, thank you. Did you say your name is Appleyard? Hero Key? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jason to you. You a farmer? Was. Yeah, I was hearing. Oh, who from? Someone I met this morning. Has a lot of respect for your family. Who's old Tom? He was my dad. We were mutton and beef farmers. Mostly cattle. Short horns, air shears, sheep as well. We had a lot of livestock. <laughs> Too much, as it turned out. Should have diversified, but my dad only really knew sheep and cattle. A few years ago, we were hit badly by foot and mouth disease. Had to kill all the animals. Wiped us out. That's terrible. Had a big impact on the family. Here, do you want another? Yeah, sure. It won't be a tick. Excuse me, love, that glass finished with? Oh, yeah, here. Young Jason's a good lad, just like his dad. You could do a lot worse. Actually, we're not... Rotten what happened to that family. You know his dad committed suicide. God, no. After the call, they had to borrow to keep going. Some American bloke lent them the money and then he foreclosed on it and kicked him out. Oh, no. He took the farm and the land, everything. The talk he's going to build a golf course or something on it. Oh, there are some mean bastards around. Don't you listen to Cathy. She knows everything about nothing and nothing about everything. Hey, Kath? I know Jason's got an eye for a pretty girl. Yeah, get off with you, Kath. Go mind someone else's business. Ooh. Thanks. Don't mind her. She seems fun enough. Yeah, she's OK. Are you? I think I just had some bad news. Mr Clover Soup? Dorcas! Are you there? Oh, no. Dastardly deeds indeed. We'll find out what happened to Dorcas later. But first, Dad's Army. Jane. Early in the Second World War, a force of volunteers was raised and trained a rather loose expression in the beginning, for defence against the threat of invasion. This was the Home Guard, and they had their own rule book. Well, it was a government organisation. You can still get their training manual on Amazon, although an original will now cost you £45. By August 1940, over 1.4 million men had volunteered for the Home Guard. Obviously, the volunteers had to be excluded from call-up either by their occupation, for a health reason, or by being older than the age for serving in the forces at the time. The age limit for members of Home Guard was from 17 to 65. They were not paid and still did their regular jobs when drilled and patrolled round their work schedule. Factories were a priority for defence and many had their own home guard units. They were originally known as the Local Defence Volunteers, but were renamed the Home Guard at Winston Churchill's suggestion. It soon became known as Dad's Army, a nickname that was popularised by the BBC television comedy series so titled from the late 1960s. This rather ragtag militia with their scarce and often make-do uniforms and weaponry, 
evolved into a well-equipped and well-trained army of 1.7 million men. So it was not surprising that the government only disbanded them in 1957, 12 years after the war finished. My late husband, who was too young to be called up at the time and living in Broadstairs, was part of this venerable band. He recalled that they only had one rifle between them until the supplies arrived and drilled with broomsticks. When the rifles did arrive, he kept his under the bed. Many of the Home Guard's officers were ex-regular army veterans who had seen action on the Western Front or in other active theatres. A study of documents released by the National Archives in 2012 revealed that around half of the four million men who served between 1940 and 1945 were under 27, and a third were under 18. Far from being an all-inclusive body that anyone could volunteer for, studies by Professor Penny Summerfield and Corinna Peniston-Bird published in Contesting Home Defence, show that recruitment practices were much more selective than the official line indicated. Indeed, there was heavy criticism from some of those not allowed to join. The documents are worthy of further study, but they suggest that the men of the Home Guard were significantly more robust and formidable than the depiction of Captain Mannering's Walmington-on-Sea platoon would have us believe. Did they ever fight? Well, they were credited with shooting down numerous Luftwaffe aircraft and the V-1 bombs that followed them in the summer of 1944. They also took part in gun battles with the IRA. The official line has always maintained that no German forces made it onto British soil during the war, aside from the Channel Islands, but the Home Guard was ready for them if they had. Worcestershire's Alan Meikle described the defence that his local Home Guard had prepared for the town of Pershaw, should the worst happen. Most of the men left behind on our farm were in reserved occupations, so most of them joined the LDV, he said. We provided most of the training weapons, like pitchforks and axe handles. Also, hoes were used before proper firearms arrived. Being a hop farm, we had an abundance of long poles and heavy wires. The poles were used in the flat fields outside Pershaw, also at Upton to provide obstructions to any gliders that might land. But the wire from the hop fields had a more deadly use. At the corner of our front orchard, at the crossroads at Wick on the A44, a defensive trench was dug, and behind it, attached to a tree, was one of the coils of wire. The idea was that should a German motorcyclist drive along the road from Evesham, one of the men would run out across the road and attach the wire to a tree opposite, at the right height, to decapitate the motorcyclist. How did they know whether it was a German or a local who was coming along the road? Well, we had about three-quarters of a mile of road frontage towards Evesham, so scouts were posted along the hedge that would shout out whether it was friend or foe. If any Germans had got past our defence line they would have met a six-pound anti-tank gun sighted on the south side of Pershaw Bridge. 
If that failed, we would have blown up the bridge itself. Thankfully, no Germans ever came our way. Dill has some Dickens for us. This is an excerpt from Great Expectations, in which Mr Wemmick, the legal clerk, has invited Pip to go home with him to the district of Walworth. It appeared to be a collection of back lanes, ditches and little gardens, and to present the aspect of a rather dull retirement. Wemmick's house was a little wooden cottage in the midst of plots of garden, and the top of it was cut out and painted like a battery mounted with guns. My own doing, said Wemmick, looks pretty, don't it? I highly commended it. I think it was the smallest house I ever saw, with the queerest Gothic windows, by far the greater part of them sham, and a Gothic door, almost too small to get in at. That's a real flagstaff, you see, said Wemmick, and on Sundays I run up a real flag. Then look here, after I've crossed the bridge, I hoist it up, so, and cut off the communication. The bridge was a plank, and it crossed a chasm about four feet wide and two deep. But it was very pleasant to see the pride with which he hoisted it up and made it fast, smiling as he did so, with a relish, and not merely mechanically. At nine o'clock every night, Greenwich time, said Wemmick, the gun fires. There he is, you see. And when you hear him go, I think you'll say he's a stinger. The piece of ordnance referred to was mounted in a separate fortress constructed of lattice work. It was protected from the weather by an ingenious little contrivance in the nature of an umbrella. Then at the back, said Wemmick, out of sight so as not to impede the idea of fortifications, for it's a principle with me, if you have an idea, carry it out and keep it up. I don't know whether that's your opinion. I said decidedly. At the back, there's a pig, and there are fowls and rabbits. Then I knock together my own little frame, you see, and grow cucumbers, and you'll judge at supper what sort of a salad I can raise. So, sir, said Wemmick, smiling again, but seriously too, as he shook his head, if you can suppose the little place besieged, it would hold out a devil of a time in point of provisions. Then he conducted me to a bower about a dozen yards off, but which was approached by such ingenious twists of path that it took quite a long time to get at. And in this retreat our glasses were already set forth. Our punch was cooling in an ornamental lake on whose margin the bower was raised. This piece of water, with an island in the middle, which might have been the salad for supper, was of a circular form, and he had constructed a fountain in it, which, when he set a little mill going and took a cork out of a pipe, played to that powerful extent that it made the back of your hand quite wet. I'm my own engineer, and my own carpenter, and my own plumber, and my own gardener, and my own jack-of-all-trades, said Wemmick, in acknowledging my compliments. Well, it's a good thing, you know. It brushes the Newgate cobwebs away, and pleases the aged. You wouldn't mind being at once introduced to the aged, would you? It wouldn't put you out. I expressed the readiness I felt, and we went into the castle. There we found, sitting by a fire, a very old man in a flannel coat. Clean, cheerful, comfortable, and well cared for, but intensely deaf. Well, aged parent, 
said Wemmick, shaking hands with him in a cordial and jocose way. How am you? All right, John, all right, replied the old man. Here's Mr Pip, aged parent, said Wemmick, and I wish you could hear his name. Nod away at him, Mr Pip, that's what he likes. Nod away at him, if you please, like winking. This is a fine place of my son, sir, cried the old man, while I nodded as hard as I possibly could. This is a pretty pleasure ground, sir. This spot and these beautiful works upon it ought to be kept together by the nation after my son's time for the people's enjoyment. You're as proud of it as punch, ain't you, aged, said Wemmick, contemplating the old man, with his hard face really softened. There's a nod for you, giving him a tremendous one. There's another for you, giving him a still more tremendous one. You like that, don't you? If you're not tired, Mr Pip, though I know it's tiring to strangers, will you tip him one more? You can't think how it pleases him. I tipped him several times, and he was in great spirits. We left him bestirring himself to feed the fowls, and we sat down to our punch in the arbour, where Wemmick told me, as he smoked a pipe, that it had taken him a good many years to bring the property up to its present state of perfection. Wemmick's ideal home, you might say. But what is home, exactly? Phil's been finding out. It was only recently that I learned that there was a museum of the home. It's in some 18th-century almshouses in Shoreditch in London and used to be called the Geoffrey Museum, having opened back in 1914. Since its renovation in 2018-21, to 21, Sir Robert Geoffrey's statue has been moved to the back of the building since he was a merchant whose wealth was partly derived from the trading of enslaved people from Africa and the place now has a new name. I was interested to see how it set about dealing with the concept of the home because it can be quite a subjective notion. The dictionary goes for a place where one lives permanently, especially as part of a family or household. So is it less of a home if we live on our own? Is it not also the case that we could live somewhere that wasn't a home? Perhaps home is predominantly a state of mind. I remember friends once telling me that they'd lived in a house for ages, but it never really felt like home. I can also remember the fears that some people had about ending up in a home, the idea not in that case carrying the sense of warmth that it often has. Home also has a wider meaning, as in hometown or home country. Being half Welsh and half English based on grandparents' nationality, I often envy those who are one or the other, although I must say that dual nationality does give me two chances of being on the winning side in the Six Nations rugby. If it's a state of mind, how do you portray that in a museum? A museum of the house might work. It would have to be pretty big, of course, but then not everybody lives in a house anyway. We could have some caravans and mobile homes in it, a shepherd's hut perhaps, a tepi, a wigwam, an igloo maybe. I see some practical problems here, so let's take a sense of the actual museum itself. The museum sees home as a physical space that we live in, and that sounds quite encouragingly broad. The exhibits reflect this wider version of home too. There are photographs of a flat shared by two friends in London in 1911. The moving reminiscences of a woman from Bangladesh who moved here more than 20 years ago and still remembers the kindness showed to her by her first landlady. 
There's a letter from a mid-18th century solicitor who'd moved to London from Northumberland, describing his new life in the city, a situation of two homes corresponding with each other. Certainly when we move, it heightens our sense of home, both new and recent, and can sometimes leave us feeling a little at sea for a while. The museum also looks at the matter of maintaining our homes and gardens, its history and development, its use of servants, of gadgets and inventions, how we spend our time at home, its comforts and its disruptions, how we entertain ourselves, and whether, as in some cases, our homes are also places of worship. Of the rooms to visit, there's a 1970s front room, parlours from 1695, 1745 and 1870, drawing rooms from 1830 and 1915, and, more recently, a loft-style apartment dating from 1998. And what of the homes of the future? The museum's director, Sonia Solikari, talked to the Times newspaper. She said, Interestingly, the almshouses are beginning to look like a viable model for 21st century housing. Each person has the essentials, a bed and a table, and relies on itinerant food cellars, bakehouses and bathhouses. People are thinking about pod living now and how we can make these smaller homes work. There's an idea where our home is just a base and we get everything else we need from outside the home in shared and communal spaces. There are new artists' homes in Barking and Dagenham like this, made with communal and shared spaces as an integral part of the plan. The home of the future is looking a lot like the past. This is an interesting view, don't you think? In the course of my lifetime, I've experienced, and I must say enjoyed, homes becoming entertainment centres, first stereo, then surround sound, the advent of films, first on TV, then DVD, and now to be streamed on demand from a huge menu. Whereas once a drink meant a trip to the pub, now many homes have the equivalent of their own bars with a variety of drinks stocked from the supermarket. And yet, Ms Solikari believes that this will all switch into reverse, as homes revert to the provision of only the basic functions of living, becoming smaller and easier to maintain, with less of a footprint on the earth. Further, that we will increasingly look to the community and locality for our entertainment and enjoyment. I quite like that idea. Do you? Oh, interesting. I'm not so sure. We'll have to talk about that sometime, Phil. We will. Two more pieces now about being away from home. The first is an excerpt from The Incredible Journey, written in 1961 by Scottish author Sheila Burnford. It tells the story of three pets as they travel 300 miles through the Canadian wilderness searching for their beloved family. Burnford based the fictional story on the animals she and her husband owned while living in Canada. A bull terrier brought from England, a Siamese cat whose mutual relationship with the terrier she described as closer than any other cat and dog relationship I had ever seen, and a young Labrador retriever who also developed a close relationship with the older dog. This passage is taken from near the beginning of the book, at the start of the animal's incredible journey. They had kept a fairly steady pace for the first hour or so, falling into an order which was not to vary for many miles or days. The Labrador ran always by the left shoulder of the old dog, for the bull terrier was very nearly blind in the left eye, and they jogged along fairly steadily together, 
the bull terrier with his odd, rolling, sailor-like gait, and the Labrador in a slow lope. Some ten yards behind came the cat, whose attention was frequently distracted when he would stop for a few minutes and then catch up again. But in between these halts, he ran swiftly and steadily, his long, slim body low to the ground. When it was obvious that the old dog was flagging, the Labrador turned off the quiet, gravelled road and into the shade of a pine wood beside a clear, fast-running creek. The old dog drank deeply, standing up to his chest in the cold water. The cat picked his way delicately to the edge of an overhanging rock. Afterwards, they rested in the deep pine needles under the trees, the terrier panting heavily with his eyes half-closed, and the cat busy with his eternal washing. They lay there for nearly an hour until the sun struck through the branches above them. The young dog rose and stretched, then walked towards the road. The old dog rose too, stiff-legged, his head low. He walked toward the waiting Labrador, limping slightly and wagging his tail at the cat, who suddenly danced into a patch of sunlight, struck at a drifting leaf, then ran straight at the dogs, swerving at the last moment and as suddenly sitting down again. They trotted steadily on all that afternoon, mostly travelling on the grassy verge at the side of the quiet country road, sometimes in the low overgrown ditch that ran alongside if the acute hearing of the young dog warned them of an approaching car. By the time the afternoon sun lay in long, barred shadows across the road, the cat was still travelling in smooth, swift bursts, and the young dog was comparatively fresh. But the old dog was very weary, and his pace had dropped to a limping walk. They turned off the road into the bush at the side and walked slowly through a clearing in the trees, pushing their way through the tangled undergrowth at the far end. They came out upon a small open place where a giant spruce had crashed to the ground and left a hollow where the roots had been, filled now with drifted dry leaves and spruce needles. The late afternoon sun slanted through the branches overhead and it looked invitingly snug and secure. The old dog stood for a minute, his heavy head hanging and his tired body swaying slightly, then lay down on his side in the hollow. The cat, after a good deal of wary observation, made a little hollow among the spruce needles and curled around in it, purring softly. The young dog disappeared into the undergrowth and reappeared presently, his smooth coat dripping water, to lie down a little way apart from the others. The old dog continued to pant exhaustedly for a long time, one hind leg shaking badly, until his eyes closed at last. The laboured breaths came further and further apart, and he was sleeping, still, save for an occasional long shudder. Later on, when darkness fell, the young dog moved over and stretched out closely at his side, and the cat stalked over to lie between his paws. And so, warmed and comforted by their closeness, the old dog slept, momentarily unconscious of his aching, tired body or his hunger. 
In the nearby hills, a timber wolf howled mournfully. Owls called and answered and glided silently by with great outspread wings. And there were faint whispers of movement and small rustling noises around all through the night. Once, an eerie wail like a baby's crying woke the old dog and brought him shivering and whining to his feet. But it was only a porcupine who scrambled noisily and clumsily down a nearby tree trunk and waddled away, still crying softly. When he lay down again, the cat was gone from his side. Another small night hunter slipping through the unquiet shadows that froze to stillness at his passing. The young dog slept in fitful, uneasy starts, his muscles twitching, constantly lifting his head and growling softly. Once he sprang to his feet with a full-throated roar, which brought a sudden splash in the distance, then silence. And who knows what else unknown, unseen or unheard passed through his mind to disturb him further. Only one thing was clear and certain, that at all costs he was going home, home to his own beloved master. Home lay to the west, his instinct told him, but he could not leave the other two, so somehow he must take them with him, all the way. Our second piece about being far off from home takes us back again to the Second World War. Jane. In January 1941, Sheila Shear and her sister were evacuated from East London to the Chilterns and billeted with a bachelor called Harry Mayo. They came from very different backgrounds. The Shears were Jewish, he was Christian, but an affectionate bond developed between them. Weekly visits and holidays with Uncle Harry as they came to know him continued long after the war had ended. When Harry died, Sheila and her mother went to the funeral. When we got to Chesham, we were treated like the closest members of his family. In fact, in the church, and this was the first Christian funeral my mother and I had ever been to, we were put to sit in the front row, in front of Uncle Harry's nieces and nephews. It was only then, I think, that I really appreciated how much our little family had meant to him and had gone on meaning to him all his life. We returned to London in the knowledge that we would never go back to Chesham again. But the following day, we each received a letter from his solicitor containing a cheque. In the envelope was a note that read, A very small token of my very great affection. Sheila is a past president of the League of Jewish Women and an energetic organiser at Nightingale House, a Jewish care home in London. Joan Risley lives near Chelmsford. She is a grandmother who learnt to swim when she was 60 and keeps fit by line dancing. Don Bailey ran a pension scheme for a large company in the West Midlands until his retirement a decade ago. These three people are unconnected, but they have one thing in common. The greatest evacuation of children in British history 
which began on Friday the 1st of September 1939. It was codenamed Operation Pied Piper. Who on earth came up with that name? Not a mother, that is certain. After all, the Piper leads the children of Hamlin away from the town, never to return. Over the six years of the war, more than two million children were sent away from their family homes. Most returned, but how they had changed and how the separation affected their relationships with their families is seldom considered. What must it have been like to be sent away from home at five, ten or even fourteen, as some of the older ones were, and then come back months or, more often, years later and have to pick up where you left off? Is it even possible when your life has changed in all other respects? And who were the winners and losers in the whole evacuation project? Joan Risley is keen to emphasise the good points in her experience. She was evacuated twice. The first time, she went with her sister to Beckles in Suffolk. They were home by the beginning of 1940, but when an invasion seemed likely, Joan announced that she wished to be evacuated again. None of her brothers and sisters wanted to go too, so she was sent alone, aged nine, to Northamptonshire. She lived there with a childless couple who loved and cared for her as their own. And when she returned in 1945, she found it difficult. I remember sitting on a sofa with a feeling of not belonging. By that time, we were really poor. Dad was still ill and unable to work. My family all commented on how I talked different. So I had that strange feeling of not quite belonging, yet wanting to be there because they were my family. I soon got used to being with Mum and she got used to me, but with my siblings it was more difficult. They are my family and I'm very fond of them, but they never went away like I did, so they don't understand that I've had these two lives. Two lives. That is what so many children of that generation had, and for some, it was, in retrospect, a bonus. But it wasn't a bonus for parents. In Operation Pied Piper, the family suffered, but the real losers, as in the legend, were the parents. It was as tough for many as one would expect. Although some wrote of their immense gratitude to the kindly foster parents who had loved and cared for their children, there were far more stories of mothers feeling that they had missed part of their children's lives. Vera Britton wrote in her memoir the small, gallant figures which disappeared behind the flapping tarpaulin of the grey-painted Duchess of Athol have never grown up in my mind, for the children who returned and eventually took their places were not the same. The break in continuity made them rather appear as elder brother and sister, of the vanished pair. If you ask Don Bailey about his past, he immediately talks about his evacuation to Litchfield, just 20 miles from his home in West Bromwich. It changed his life and that of his younger brother, Phil. Mrs Coles, their foster mother, gave them something their own mother could never have done, a love of books and learning. 
and it was not one-sided. Twenty years after the war, Mrs Coles wrote to Dom to say that she felt the children had been sent to cheer her up. I considered that she was proper middle class, while we were clearly working class. I learnt to appreciate all those different things from Mrs Coles. I learnt how to talk to people and how to address them properly and with confidence. I developed a different accent, dropping my black country slang. In fact, I have to say Mrs Coles changed me completely and she loved me. I'm ashamed to admit it more than my mother ever did. She made me feel wanted. She called us my boys and that really meant something to us. When the boys went back to West Bromwich after the war, Don was dismayed by his mother's reaction to his newfound interest in books and education. She cursed him for being a bloody big head and was constantly nagging him to shift your bloody books. Even parents who were delighted that their children had had life-enhancing experiences and opportunities found it hard to adjust to the changes. Fathers, often forgotten in the evacuation story, also felt they'd lost out. In 1944, Ted Matthews wrote to one of his four daughters, whom he sent to America in 1940. Sending you away has been, in some ways, a tragedy. I still think it was the right thing to do, even though events proved different from our fears. But it's been heartbreaking to miss these years of your lives. We shall meet again as almost strangers. Michael Henderson and his brother Gerald were sent to Boston in 1940, aged eight and six. They lived with a loving family and completely absorbed the culture, education and American way of life. Now, as then, it felt like a positive gain on every level. Yet he wrote, Returning home, it was hard for us to step into the lives of parents who had survived the bombing and more recently the V1, V2 rockets and would jump at any loud noise. Our parents' admonishments were met with, we don't do that in America. Soon, America became known in our family as Wheeland. Sometimes, children observed their parents afresh and found their way of life different from what they'd grown used to with foster parents. John Mayer, who'd been evacuated to Canada aged seven, was horrified, as only a child can be, by what he found on his return to Bath. He told his friend Penny, My mother wears lipstick and powder. They drink and smoke, and even the dog is called Whiskey. The golfing experience was felt not just between generations or within families in which some children had been evacuated and others had not. Nigel Bromage and his twin brother Michael spent two years of the war on a farm in South Wales. They shared a room, they went to the same school, experienced the same foster family and saw the same sights in the countryside. They were seven when they arrived and nine when they left. Yet they had two opposite responses to their evacuation. Nigel and Michael's hosts were small farmers at Golden Grove near Llandilo in Carmarthenshire. They had 20 cows, all of which had to be milked by hand 
and the only aid was a horse. For Nigel, there was no downside. As I enjoyed my experience on the Williams's farm, so my brother did not. It's not perhaps surprising. We were very different personalities. He, an introvert. I, an extrovert. He tended to opt out of activities around the farm. I volunteered for everything. I loved every minute of it. I don't think I was particularly aware of Michael's unhappiness at the time because I was enjoying myself. It was only after he died that my sister told me how homesick and unhappy Michael had been. Foster parents are often forgotten in the evacuation story, yet their role was vital. For them, the war years often brought great delight, although it was only temporary. One wrote poignantly, Here are your children. Mother and I have loved them with all our hearts. We ask you to keep alive their loyalty to us, as we have kept alive their loyalty to you. May they never forget that they have two homes. As there was such pressure on rural households to take evacuees, some children were billeted with childless couples and for many, lifelong relationship ensued. These are the good news stories that we don't hear enough about. Some children became so much a part of their foster parents' lives that the outcome was life-changing for all parties. Gordon Abbott is constantly irritated that people are not interested in his evacuation story as it had a happy ending. He was fostered by a childless couple who farmed in Cornwall. They loved him, cared for him and educated him as if he had been their natural son. He was blissfully happy. When the war was over, he and the couple were devastated that he had to return to London. But there seemed no choice. Once home, Gordon felt like a fish out of water. He did not like the city and he was not particularly enamoured of his mother's new boyfriend. She, in turn, realised he was deeply unsettled and she soon wrote to his foster parents to ask if he could return to Cornwall. He did and was adopted by them as their son. The war had given him a new family. I loved them dearly and thank the upbringing they gave me, which helped me into my adult life. There have been many stories written by evacuees about their childhood experiences and the effect it had on their lives. Some were happy, some were unhappy, and some were appalling. I was one of the many happy ones, and my years as an evacuee from London to the West Country were filled with wonderful memories. That was an article in The Guardian, written by Julie Summers in March 2011. This is an article from the Worcester Journal of July 31st, 1788. Phil. On Saturday last, their majesties, the Princess Royal, the Princess Elizabeth and Princess Augusta, attended by Lord Courttown, Colonel Digby, Lady Courttown and Lady Weymouth, paid a visit to the Earl of Coventry at his beautiful seat at Croom near this city. They arrived at about half past nine in the morning and were received by Lord and Lady Coventry amidst the acclamations of some thousands of all ranks, even age and infirmity having, on that day, yielded to the impulse of curiosity and respect. 
His Majesty, on handing the Queen from the carriage, expressed much satisfaction at the goodness of the roads. The royal visitors were conducted into the tapestry room, which, for beauty and magnificence, may justly be said to vie with any in the kingdom, where a breakfast the most sumptuous and tastefully disposed had been prepared. After breakfast, they took a view of the park, pleasure grounds, shrubberies, the small but elegant church built by Lord Coventry, and those other beauties of nature and art for which Croom is so much distinguished, and continued walking upwards of two hours, during which time they were saluted by the firing of some small cannon planted on an eminence near the house. After gratifying their own and the curiosity of numerous spectators, whose plaudits they received with pleasure and returned by repeated salutes, His Majesty and the noblemen, on horseback, the Queen, princesses and ladies in carriages, proceeded to Lady Coventry's farm about a mile distant, and about three o'clock returned to partake of a dinner, the superlative elegance of which it is impossible to describe. After dinner, the royal guests, desirous of satisfying as much as in their power that wish they had excited, appeared at the windows, where they continued for some time, expressing by their looks and gestures the happiness they experienced in the evident and almost incessant marks of loyalty and affection shown them by thousands of their surrounding subjects. In fact, the joy of the sovereign, his family and his people seemed totally reciprocal. At six o'clock, the carriages were ordered, and in a few minutes after, the royal family, attended by their suite and followed by Lord and Lady Coventry in his lordship's carriage, set off for Cheltenham, not less pleased with the singular marks of attention shown them by the distinguished personages whom they visited than with the respectful and becoming demeanour of those of inferior rank. Moving on about a hundred years... John Plush has been looking back at American history and a familiar tune. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not clouded all day. The night Franklin D. Roosevelt was first elected president, a group of reporters sang Home on the Range on his doorstep in New York City. He asked them to repeat it and made the statement so it was said that it was his favourite song. Later, he often listened to the ballad at the White House, and it was reported that at Warm Springs he frequently led his guests in singing it. Stories of the President's approval soon made Home on the Range one of the country's hit songs. By 1934, it had moved to the top on the radio, where it stayed for six months. Everybody sang it. Radio stations, film companies, recording studios and music publishers had a field day, all free of royalties, for there was no copyright and the author was unknown. At its peak, the song was literally sung around the world. Even in the Antarctic, the penguins heard how the deer and the antelope play. Admiral Richard E. Byrd spent six months alone at the South Pole and said, For entertainment, I took with me an old-style Edison phonograph and a few favourite records. After I'd read my instruments and had written up my notes for each day, I gave myself daily concerts, always playing the song that
that tells about the land of sunshine where the sky is not cloudy all day. When the cold grew more intense, my phonograph, operated by a spring, froze up and wouldn't go. I couldn't play my favourite record, so I found myself breaking the loneliness by singing Home on the Range against the cold, bleak darkness of the South Pole. Such sudden and worldwide success was probably never equalled by another song. But then, in 1934, even more suddenly, every radio station in the United States was warned to take Home on the Range off the air. A suit for infringement of copyright had been filed in the courts of New York for half a million dollars against 35 individuals and corporations, including the National Broadcasting Company, in the name of William and Mary Goodwin of Temper, Arizona. They claimed that William had written the words and Mary the melody of a song entitled An Arizona Home and that the copyright had been registered on February the 27th, 1905. This, they declared, was the parent of Home on the Range. The song at once ceased to be published, recorded or sung by professional singers. The defence of the suit was taken over by the Music Publishers Protective Association. Samuel Moanfelt, a New York lawyer, was employed to investigate the claim and to discover, if possible, the origins of the words and music. This was an assignment that started him on a three-month tour of nearly every state west of the Mississippi and eventually revealed the elusive origin of Home on the Range. At the outset, Moanfelt traced all the popular versions of the song to 1910 and the researches of one man, John Lomax. Lomax grew up in Texas near the old Chisholm Trail, a vast tract of land along which countless huge herds of cattle were routinely driven all the way up to Kansas. As a boy, he wrote down many of the cowboy songs. Later on, the University of Harvard gave Lomax a three-year travelling fellowship to collect American folk music. This 36-month project lasted, in fact, for 40 years, and the result is now in the Library of Congress. 10,000 of Lomax's own phonograph records and another 10,000 which his example inspired. The first byproduct of Lomax's work was a book printed in 1910 called Cowboy Songs. This, as Moanfelt learned, was the publication which may have saved Home on the Range from oblivion. Lomax's account of how he recorded it was among his favourite stories. Writing in the Southwest Review, he said, on a summer day in 1908, I walked into the Buckhorn Saloon in San Antonio lugging a heavy Edison recording machine. The proprietor told me of a Negro singer who ran a beer saloon out beyond the Southern Pacific Depot in a scrubby mesquite grove. This Negro had been a camp cook for years and had made the trip up the Chisholm Trail half a dozen times. He can give you a lot of cowboy songs if you can get him to sing, said my friend. That same afternoon I found my man behind his saloon shack, with his hat pulled down over his eyes, his head tilted back against the mesquite tree. When I shook him awake and told him what I wanted, he muttered, as he looked at me with bleary eyes, "'Us drunk. Come back tomorrow and I'll sing for you.' I spent all the next day under the mesquite tree with this negro. Among the songs he sang for me was Home on the Range, the first time I had heard the melody. A few weeks afterwards, 
Henry Laberman, a blind teacher of music at the State School for the Blind in Austin, set down the music from the record I've made that day. Laberman used earphones and played the record over and over again until he felt sure that he had captured the music as the Negro saloon keeper had rendered it. This music, printed in the 1910 edition of Cowboy Songs, makes up the core of the tune that has become popular. For 20 years, the song remained unnoticed among 27 other cowboy songs, which Henry Laberman also wrote out for my book. Saved from oblivion, perhaps, but still of unknown origin. Moanfelt needed to go back further. News of the Goodwins' attempted lawsuit had prompted many letters, one of which was from a Chicago woman who stated that in 1880 the song had been sung regularly by the pupils of the Stanbury Normal School in Missouri, which she had attended. Since this was the earliest date so far ascribed to the song, Moanfelt began interviewing the old graduates whose names she gave him. Several made affidavits that before 1890, Home on the Range had been sung at meetings of their present society without printed words or music like a folk song. These interviews convinced Moanfelt that the ballad had originated in the cowboy country. He narrowed his search to Dodge City, where he talked with ex-cowboys, ex-cooks of cowboy camps, ex-stagecoach drivers and old-time buffalo hunters. They gave him signed statements that it had been well known in the cow camps prior to 1890. Moanfelt tracked down one of the oldest pioneers still alive, a Mr Reese, who stated that sometime in 1873 he had come into contact with a certain Dr Bruce Higley when a friend of his was a patient of the doctor, and that he remembers distinctly Dr Higley asking him to read a poem that the doctor himself had written. The words of the poem, Reese recalled, were those of the song Home on the Range, the earliest reference that Moanfelt had come across predating the Goodwin's claim by more than 30 years. Moanfelt's inquiries had led him to Smith Centre in Kansas, where he met a blind musician by the name of Clarence B. Harlan. Harlan told him that around 1874 he used to play the guitar while his brother Eugene, some ten years younger than Clarence, played the violin. Together, they formed the Harlan Orchestra, playing all over the country for dances, reunions and other celebrations. The Harlans had a brother-in-law called Daniel Kelly, who apparently had a great voice and who, crucially, wanting to sing the words of Home on the Range, set about writing a tune to fit them. Mr Harlan stated that Kelly made up several tunes and that after Clarence and Eugene had tried them on their instruments, eventually settled on the melody that is now universally known for Home on the Range. It was never written down, but he and his brother learned to play it on their instruments, and through performances at the orchestra's various concerts, its popularity spread, eventually becoming one of the most popular tunes in the United States. It would seem that at last, Home on the Range had found its home. The lyrics to Home on the Range were written by Dr Bruce Higley with music by Dan Kelly. So what's happening with old Dorcas Clover Soup? And will Daniel Trope dig himself into a bit of a hole?
Let's hope so. Here's part two of The Eighteenth Hole by John Stanbury. And there's another JCB being delivered tomorrow. Make sure he puts the keys in this office when he's done. In the safe. Mr Hatchet, I'm sorry to interrupt. Something terrible's happened to Mr Clover's suit. Sylvia? Uh, sorry, gentlemen, this is Mr Trope's niece. What's the matter? His home. It's gone. What's she talking about? Whose home's gone? The dip in the top field. It's been filled in. Yeah, Eric and David did that job this morning. Mr Hatchet's all. But there's someone down there. Oh, calm down, Sylvia. Clover Soup's fine. He's moved into the old crofter's cottage on the ridge, well away from here. Well, that's derelict. He's hardly got a roof. Well, he seemed happy with it. Where is he now? He'll be up there, I imagine. Nesting. It's not so bad, miss. The outhouse is dry. I can live in there while I fix the roof in here. Then it'll be like home again. Oh, Mr Clover Soup, I'm so sorry. To think my own uncle could do this to you. He's done worse. And frankly, Miss Sylvia, I got a bit of a soft spot for this whole cottage. How? <laughs> when, when I was just a lad, me dad used to come up here when me mum threw him out. <laughs> oh, that happened often. They loved each other, but they couldn't live with each other, if you understand me. <laughs> so I used to come here to see him. And he would sleep over there, and I slept over here by the arse. <laughs> ah, they was good times. When he died, somehow I didn't want to come here no more. Uh, the place just... I felt a bit bad, leaving it to fall apart like that, but... Oh, well, nothing lasts forever, does it? But now... Now you can make up for it. Dear me, yes. Give me great pleasure to get it straight again. Don't feel me dad-like. At least until you get the roof fixed. You ought to move in with us at the big house. What, live with your uncle? <laughs> Dear me, no, miss. I don't think so. Thank you all the same. This place is a lot different from what I'm used to, sure enough. But I reckon I could be happy here. <laughs> a land survey. We haven't got time to mess about with surveys. The land's been undisturbed for hundreds of years. Or do you suppose that a, a flock of sheep have been mining it for tin? Damn it, man! That hotel is going to be finished down to the last detail by December the 24th. Or I'll sue you for every asset you possess. Do you understand me? Builders! Daniel Trope. Trope, uh, have you sorted those contractors out yet? Reggie, yeah, I've just spoken to them. Can they do it or not? Yeah, yeah, no problem. They'll do it. They can't afford not to. Right, I'm relying on you. Sure you can. And and that home office project. If you wanted to go to tender, now would be a good time. Who else is quoting? Fisher Lansdale are interested. Uh-huh. Belling, I believe. Jeez, they'll be way over. I understand the O'Haras have expressed an interest, too. Oh, really? Well, we know what they're like. Nah, should be plain sailing. With your influence, of course. Trope, I'll do my part if you do yours. Absolutely, Rick. <sighs> so 
over here. <laughs> I've not seen you for months. Yes, I'm sorry, Dorcas. Uncle put me in charge of hiring staff for the hotel and it's been full on since April. I see you've been working hard too on the cottage. It's beautiful. I never thought a drafty old crofter's cottage could be so comfy. And the views. Actually, Miss Sylvia, I'm not really one for fine views. Small windows suit me. Me dad was the same. Yes, I suppose if you've always lived underground. Exactly, miss. But it's so cosy and warm, even in this weather. Not like Uncle's enormous hotel. That'll cost the earth to heat. Is it finished? Yes, they've finished it. Just. The grand opening's tonight. He's got all sorts coming. Golfing celebrities, film stars, politicians. They've started to arrive already. You going? Yes, of course. I have to, really. I wish Jason would come. I could do with a bit of moral support. Tom Appleyard's boy? Yeah. Dearie me, I shouldn't think he'd want to go anywhere near that after the way your uncle took the land for it off his dad. You're right. He doesn't. All this year, as the golf course has gradually been taking shape, Jason's been growing more and more distant. And now it's opening. I don't know how he'll be. Ah, true. How's it going? Reggie, Marjorie, so glad you could come. Haven't they got you a drink yet? Sylvie, honey, get one of the girls to bring the Lord and Lady Sharp some champagne. Mr. Trump. Mr. Trope, can I have a word? Not at the minute, Hatchet. I'm welcoming my guests. It's very important, Mr. Trope. Oh, very well. Reggie, have you met Tiger yet? Over there, look, with his entourage. Sylvie, introduce Reggie and Marjorie to Tiger, would you? Excuse me, I won't be a moment. What is it, Hatchet? There's a, there's a problem in the Grand Mall. It's... It's, it's um, what? It's cracked. What do you mean? Cracked. There's a big hole opened up in the floor. Well, put some boarding down and a carpet over it and get the boys to... Not just in the floor, Mr. Trope. The whole of the West End is sinking. It looks like the roof might go. For Pete's sake, what garbage are you talking? Mr. Hatchet, sir, something's happened to the first tea. It's gone. Uncle, Uncle, the caterers are saying there's no electricity in the kitchen. And they can smell gas. Gas? There's a crater where the first tea Trope, should be. Trope, what's going on? All the lights just went out in the ballroom and there's the most frightful stench. Hatchet. Marjorie nearly passed out. Oh, you're, you're joking. Whose car? Mr. Trope, Terry Vane says there's a chasm opened up near the main entrance. George Clooney's car's just gone down it. Trope. Calm down, Reggie. Everything's under control. Oh, my God! Look out! Deary me. <laughs> I did tell you how extensive the underground community used to be. Just because folk don't live here no more doesn't mean the passageways have gone away. Especially the ones under the new hotel building. Ground couldn't take the weight, I suppose. Didn't they do any kind of survey? Big building like that. Uncle said there wasn't time if they were going to open by Christmas. Deary me. <laughs> the judge might have been more lenient if the subsidence hadn't disturbed the FMD burial site. It gave the lab a second chance to check the carcasses. 
They said the infected animals were all Guernseys. But you didn't have no Guernseys. No, we didn't. Daniel Troper deliberately brought over infected cows from the Crawford herd. Then tipped off the inspectors. Just to ruin Jason's dad. What can I say? Well, it's not your fault, Sylve. Anyway, Troop's paying for it now. Annoys me, though, how that scheming politician and his wife got away with it. Whitewash, as usual. Do you folk want a nice cup of tea? That would be lovely, Dorcas. Thank you. And it's not taking you long to move back into your old home, has it? Dear me, no, miss. Just a day and a half to clear the rubble from the entrance. Of the furniture still here. I was going to fetch the curtains down from the cottage, but then I thought, Miss Sylvia, you still looking for somewhere? Sure enough, that cottage is just big enough for two. Eighteenth Hole by John Stanbury, Dorcas Clover Soup was played by Mark Devlin, Sylvia by Sarah Thomas Lane, and Jason by Ollie Ward. Daniel Trope was played by Eric Perkins, the Right Honourable Reginald Sharp MP by Tim Crow, and Hatchet by Martin Bourne. Val Harrison played Kathy, and the parts of the groundsman and George the barman were taken by Stephen Buckley. And did you spot a cameo appearance by Phil Lee here as the landscaping foreman? The 18th hole was directed by John Plush. And that brings to an end our journey through this very domestic edition of Look Here. Safely gathered back at home in the studio now are Dill Porter and Jane Fares. Goodbye. And still scraping the mud from his wellies onto the carpet, Phil Lee. Goodbye. Carol Hartle handled the administration and rearranged the furniture, while David and Sylvia Day did the copying and hung the pictures. John Plush produced, but avoided doing the washing up. So from me, Pippa Curtis, and all the Look Here family, it's goodbye until we next cross your threshold. Goodbye. Goodbye.